At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the prophet Jonah. Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Let's listen now to the Word of God. Now the Word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. The word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that He had said He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. Amen. Our second Scripture reading this evening comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 29-32. through 32. Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke, the 11th chapter, verses 29 through 32. Let's listen again to God's Word. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, He began to say, This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Well, let's turn back to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. Focusing our attention this evening with God's help, relying on Him for His blessing Verse 5. Verse 5. So the people of Nineveh 
believed God, proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. This morning we took up the theme of impure Michigan. We, we appreciate so many of the glorious uh, sights and sounds in the state of Michigan and the ad campaign, Pure Michigan, but we saw that Michigan, like the other states in our union, has become a field of blood, that roughly 25,000 infants in the womb have been slaughtered every year, and that goes back at the very least to 1973, the Roe v. Wade decision, and we've just seen that decision reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court was announced, as you all know, on Friday. But there were 49 years, and it's still counting, 49 years and counting of the shedding of innocent blood that is defiling and polluting our state, our land, our cities, our communities, and our nation. What are we going to do about that? We talked this morning about the various passages that point us to that compound interest on our national and state sin debt, that the the innocent blood is crying out from the ground for all the infants, all the hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of infants that that have been put to death in the state of Michigan for the last 49 years and counting. We can stop abortion, God willing, we can... You know, the latest ruling can help limit it. Hopefully we can put an end to it. But even if we stopped it right now, the blood is still crying out from the ground. And so the only hope that we have as a state, as a civilization, as a society, is the mercy of God. Because otherwise He will crush us. He will destroy us. Only the mercy of God can deliver us from the wrath of God against our nation and against our state. Only God's mercy can save us and rescue us from the guilt of this ongoing holocaust in our land. And the Scriptures point us in terms of God's mercy to nations, they point us to a very important promise, a very important statement that's made in Jeremiah 18 verse 7 that gives us some clarity for understanding how God deals with nations that have sinned against Him, how He deals with unjust, bloodthirsty nations. How does He deal with them? How can we avoid the wrath that hangs over our heads as a nation? Jeremiah 18, verse 7, God says, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I had said I would benefit it. Now therefore... Speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster 
and devising a plan against you. Return now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. And they said, that is hopeless. See, you can sympathize. They're looking at the society, the culture they're in. They're saying, this this is hopeless. That's never going to happen. That is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans and we will everyone obey the dictates of his evil heart. God says, if you repent and turn from these evil deeds, I will have mercy. I will relent. Now, God has decreed to relent in those instances from the foundation of the world. So we're not denying the immutable, unchangeable character of God or of His purposes. But what it's telling us here is that God in His mercy, though we have accumulated a great debt of judgment and wrath, if we turn to Him, if we turn from our evil ways and turn to Him, seeking His mercy, then He will heal and pardon our land. That is something we're going to see this evening, God willing, in our text. That when we repent, now again, just repenting doesn't deal with it, but when we repent and when we seek His face, and when we do it in the way that we see here among the Ninevites, where they cry out mightily to the Lord, if perchance the Lord would be merciful to them and hold back His wrath and anger, if we call out to the Lord in mercy, then He will hear and He will hold back that wrath. Now, the fact is, we understand the theological basis upon which God makes that promise. God makes that promise in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. When God says, if you turn from your wicked ways, when He speaks to individuals, turn from the wrath to come, turn from your wicked ways and turn to Me, what is it that enables Him to accept that repentant sinner and not bring judgment and wrath for all the many years of sin in that person's life. It is the blood of Jesus Christ according to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. Even in the book of Jonah, in the book of Jeremiah, when they say repent, when God says turn from your evil ways and turn to Me, the only hope of pardon, the only hope of healing and restoration is in and through the work of Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ that speaks a better word than that of Abel. We saw that this morning. And so if there's somebody here who has participated in an abortion, if there's somebody here who has committed another sin that's just weighing down on your conscience, and perhaps you're living in that sin, perhaps you're still involved in it, whatever the case may be, God says, turn from your evil way, turn to Me. But it's important that we understand the only hope of getting a clean slate and a clean record is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And what we see here in Jonah chapter 3, what we see in this repentance of Nineveh that's described for us is a paradigm for nations and cities and societies today. What would it look like for a nation to repent of its sin, a nation under God's wrath, a nation that deserves to be dashed to pieces by the scepter of King Jesus, what would it look like for a nation or a culture to turn to the Lord and to be delivered from that dashing to pieces that it deserves? Well, we see an example here, a beautiful example in Jonah chapter 3. We're told that this is the city of Nineveh to which Jonah is sent to preach. God gives him a message. He calls him to go to the city of Nineveh. 
And Nineveh, we're told, was an exceedingly great city. An exceedingly great city. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And in the ancient world, especially at this time, Assyria was one of the most, if not the most powerful, influential empires uh, in the ancient world. And so Assyria has its capital city, its center of power, right here in this great and magnificent city of Nineveh, which was founded way back in the early chapters of Genesis by a man named Nimrod. And it, it was an ancient city, a powerful city. Nahum 3 verse 1 tells us something of the moral character of this city throughout the, the ages, that it was the bloody city. He says, woe to the bloody city. This is a, a nation, the Assyrian nation, and this is a city, the city of Nineveh, that was stained with innocent blood. This is a nation and a city that was notorious for its cruelty. Its cruelty to its enemies in battle when they would take prisoners of war, when they would capture foreign generals and monarchs, the things that they would do to mutilate the bodies of these individuals and to put them on display and so on. It was a legendary, bloodthirsty cruelty that characterized this bloody city of Nineveh. And of course, they didn't worship the true God. They worshiped the false god, Dagon, among others. But we'll say something about Dagon in just a moment. Now, God raises up Jonah. He sends Jonah, who was a prophet in Israel in the northern kingdom, let's say roughly 750 years before Christ. Some debate over that, but something along those lines. 750 B.C., He's sometimes characterized as the reluctant prophet because as we know, many of us, when God sent him to Nineveh, he fled to Tarshish on a ship and God sent a storm. And again, most of us know the story that in order to appease God's judgment of sending the storm to capsize the boat, the sailors throw Jonah at his request into the sea and there is peace and calm. Really a picture of Christ. The death of Christ that calmed and propitiated the wrath of God and turned it away. And so God is angry against sin and sinners. But in the case of His people, because Christ underwent death, because Christ was cast in, as it were, to the the waters of death, therefore there's peace with God. And we know Jonah fell and sank into the water and eventually God sent a great fish to swallow Jonah and God miraculously kept him alive in the belly of this fish and then after three days and three nights in that belly of the great fish, Jonah came to repentance and God caused the fish to vomit him up onto the beach and head to Nineveh. Having repented, he's now entering round two. He's going to go preach this message that God gave him to the people of Nineveh. Now, if you look at what Jonah says here, you can, you can see very easily that it's an abbreviation of his message. Verse 4 says, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So we know this is the emphasis of his message, but certainly this is not the full force of his message. He said many other things like the Scriptures typically do. They just summarize the main point of his message. He's preaching that God will bring judgment, God will overturn and overthrow the city of Nineveh in 40 days because of its sin. 
This is the message God gave him to preach. Verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Now there's no indication that Jonah failed to preach the message that God gave him to preach. But there is some sense that perhaps he focused on one aspect of the message to the exclusion of other aspects in terms of his emphasis. You see in verse 4, he pretty much just says there's judgment coming in 40 days. There's no exhortation to repent. There's nothing of the mercy of God. It's not to say he didn't mention any of these things. It's just that didn't seem to be the main thrust of his message, his preaching. Uh, You can see in chapter 4, verse 2, that uh, Jonah begins to get angry because God relents upon Nineveh's repentance. God pulls back and and decides he's not going to send this judgment upon the people of Nineveh. And Jonah's upset about this. Verse 2, so he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. So it seems likely that the message that God gave him to preach gave some indication of God's merciful character and of the call to repentance and of the possibility that God would relent from doing harm upon the repentance of the Ninevites. But Jonah didn't focus on that point because Jonah was overwhelmed with this sense of righteous indignation that perhaps boiled over into bitterness and resentment over the the bloodthirsty cruelty of Nineveh which they had unleashed upon the surrounding nations and and perhaps it's almost certain that they had uh, brutally treated the children of Israel as well. So Jonah is looking to see God's judgment but he does preach a message Perhaps a reference, at least at some point, to, to repentance and mercy, but focusing on that wrath that was to come uh, after 40 days. We're also told in our other scripture text that we read in Luke 11 that the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, that's Jesus' generation, for the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So that seems to imply that Jonah did preach a message of repentance, not just doom and gloom, there's no hope at all. It seems that he did preach something of repentance because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And then a comparison is made to Christ who preached, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jonah was an evangelical preacher, but... He really had a chip on his shoulder. He wasn't, he wasn't bringing the message with the same emphasis perhaps that he could have. But in any event, he preached repentance and he preached the judgment of God. Now, in what sense does Jesus mean that Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites? Jesus says that, verse 30 of Luke 11, for as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, why would Jonah be a visible token of God's truth and of the message that he proclaimed. Well, Dagon, as some of you may know, was a fish god. Dagon, who they've discovered, archaeologists uh, 
and historians are, are certain of this, they discovered evidence that the Ninevites worshipped this fish god. There are inscriptions and uh, archaeological discoveries that show that they worshipped, among other gods, Dagon as one of their main chief objects of worship. Dagon, some uh, inscriptions or some, some you know, pictures that they found chiseled out, picture him as half man, half fish, others just as a fish. So you can see the impact that was made when God caused Jonah through this whole series of events to be swallowed by a great fish and then belched out on the beach and perhaps some type of discoloration on his skin from the the acidic saliva of the fish. We're not sure what he looked like, but the point is, as he preached this message of judgment and repentance, and as he no doubt recounted some of what he had just been through and they saw tokens of it, he actually became an outward sign of the message that he preached. Something else that's significant before we look at the, the, the example of the Ninevites here is the way in which this response of repentance takes place. I don't know if you noticed that during the Scripture reading, the transition from verse 5 into verse 6. So notice, Jonah preaches in verse 4, 40 days, the wrath is coming. Verse 5 So the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Notice that this repentance begins with the people. It's the people of Nineveh that believed God. This message didn't come first and foremost to the king. It's not as though the king was convicted. Oh, look at the the violence and the bloodthirstiness of our land, look at all the innocent blood that's crying out from the ground, and and that, that in some way the king led the charge. That's not what happened. The people heard Jonah preaching in the streets of their city, and the Holy Spirit so convicted them, they were persuaded and convinced in their conscience that God hates the hands that shed innocent blood and that their hands were covered in innocent blood as individuals and as a society. So it began with the people from the greatest to the least and from the least to the greatest. Every class, every demographic, all of these different individuals such that the response of the people of Nineveh was so significant that it wasn't long before in verse 6 we see that the word came to the king. We're not told that the king was there listening to Jonah's preaching, but the king encountered people who were running to him saying, you've got to hear what's happening. There's this preacher in the streets, and people are declaring, proclaiming a fast. They're putting on sackcloth from the greatest of, to the least of them. So the people proclaimed the fast. The people got the ball rolling. Then the word came to the king, the king gets up to speed, and he's so impacted, perhaps by the message he's hearing secondhand, but no doubt also from the fact that the people of his city and of his society have taken such an initiative to sorrow before the Lord for their sin, that response of the people gets his attention. And so he arises from his throne, lays aside his robe, covers himself with sackcloth and sits in ashes, and then he makes a proclamation. But notice it begins with the people. And literally in the Hebrew, the word for people there is the men. And that's what Jesus highlights when he speaks of the men 
of Nineveh. Now, I'm not saying that in order to discount the role of women in this type of repentance and and corporate confession of sin and the sort of revival and reformation we want to see in our country. But it is significant here that it is the men of Nineveh that hear this preaching and that respond to it. Because it was likely the men who had been, they would have been more likely to be involved in this violent shedding of blood, more likely to be involved in the military, more likely to be directly involved in the violent crimes that were proclaimed against the city of Nineveh. And so the men of Nineveh respond. And you can see the influence. It's not long before the king is, is responding and there's a national or citywide fast. And all of these dominoes, all of these events, all of this impact takes place because the men of the city respond to the preaching of repentance. We need to be careful that we don't underestimate what God can do through a faithful Christian and through a faithful man in in our society. We may think, well, I'm not the president, I'm not the governor, I'm not really much of anything. Even in society itself, when you look at the, the house that I live in, the money that I make, the status that I have, I'm a nobody, I'm a nothing. But you see, God can use common people God can use ordinary individuals. He used the men of Nineveh. And Jesus Christ takes note of that. He uses them as an example of repentance. Because they transformed, they turned their city and their society. Remember, this is the capital city of the empire. They turned the world upside down. And it was just each one of them repenting. Each one of them taking seriously the word of God which Jonah was proclaiming. You say, I'm just a man. Well, Elijah was a man of like passions as ourselves. And God raised him up to be a great leader and a voice of truth to, to turn his society upside down. Elijah was a man. You're a man or a woman. You're a Christian. You are someone. Think of the, the little slave girl in, was it Syria, that simply passed along the recommendation to Naaman that he ought to go and see the prophet Elisha. Don't underestimate what God can do in you and through you. Satan lies to us. Satan deceives us to think, well, there's really no point in me repenting or me putting on the sackcloth or me joining in the proclamation of this fast. It's not going to do anything. I'm not the king. I'm not a, a noble. I don't have any clout or political influence. Nonsense. These were just ordinary men, and it turned their city upside down. And what an encouragement that is. Well, what did these men do? Even the least of them to the greatest. What did they do? What is the pattern and paradigm that we ought to look for in our own society? Well, first, they believed God. You say, I thought we were talking about repentance, and now it's talking about believing God and faith. But you see, Faith and repentance go hand in hand. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Repentance is always a believing repentance. And faith always works itself out by love. It's a penitent faith. They believed God. What does that mean? Well, 
It means, first of all, they listened to what Jonah was saying, which was the message that God had given to Jonah. They heard the word of God, the revelation of God. They received the judgment of the law of God, the warning that God had raised Jonah up to proclaim, and they believed God. Listen to uh, Proverbs 6. I just want to read this. Proverbs 6, verse 16, familiar passage speaks of the six things that the Lord hates. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. A proud look. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift in running to evil. A false witness who speaks lies. And one who sows discord among brethren. Jonah proclaimed that God hates the hands that shed innocent blood and that He will bring judgment on those who do not repent of that. Jonah proclaimed that, and we often proclaim that. Many of us are involved in open-air evangelism and things of this sort, and we proclaim that. And when it says that they believed God, you know as well as I do exactly what that means. It means they heard that God hates the hands that shed innocent blood, And they believed that. They believed that, yes, there is this God, Jehovah. And that this God of Israel is sovereign. And that He has created man. And that He is the judge. And that He hates the hands that shed innocent blood. And that that is a sin. And that the wages of sin is death. In other words, they took in what Jonah was saying. And they believed it. They actually believed it. Now, we don't see that as much as we would like when we do evangelism, but they heard this message, God hates the hands that shed innocent blood, judgment in 40 days, and they actually believed it. Do you believe it? Do you believe what the Word of God says about God's character, about His righteousness and justice? When the Bible says something is a sin, we could just look at the list here, a proud look, a lying tongue. Do you believe that it's wrong to lie? Do you believe it's wrong to be proud? Do you believe that's a sin that God hates, that's an abomination? Uh, Sowing discord among the brethren. Do you believe that's a sin? Do you believe that that is something God hates and that God will judge? Do you believe that? The people of Nineveh, I'd say to their credit, but it's really the grace of God in them and through them, they believed that. They believed that. Faith doesn't just receive and rejoice in the promises of God. Faith trembles at the threatenings of the Word of God. And in this case, I think, if you look at the response of Judas, when he had at least some sense of the gravity of his offense, he he said, I have betrayed innocent blood. And of course, that was not true repentance. was not true sorrow and repentance unto life, godly sorrow, if you will. But he was overwhelmed. I have betrayed innocent blood. He was crushed by it. He was weighed down with the guilt of it. Now, my friends, true saving faith, like we hope was the case in Nineveh, we, we can't say for sure every single person was converted, but we hope many of them were converted. We're, we're quite confident that many of them were And that this was true saving faith. But my friends, true saving faith in response to the Word of God is going to be more than Judas. It's not going to be less than Judas. 
And I fear today on the issue of abortion that there are many well-meaning pro-life organizations that do not present the full truth regarding the sin of abortion and regarding the fact that it is to betray and shed innocent blood. And I understand in certain contexts you're trying to persuade a woman to to not murder her baby, and and I understand prudence and wisdom, no no doubt about it. There's a different people do it in different ways. I'm not trying to be dogmatic on every single situation. But on the whole, there have been interviews of people at some of these pro-life rallies in the Capitol and so on where pro-life people are unwilling to say that it's murder. They're unwilling to, to go on record that this is murder, that this is shedding of innocent blood. And this is a problem, my friends. That's a phony version of pro-life. If we're seeking truly to proclaim the gospel and to call people to repentance and to promote a biblical understanding of this sin and of the response that we ought to have to it, we can't have a response that's less than Judas, right? Judas, the son of perdition, who's in hell right now, at least Judas said, my hands have shed innocent blood. I've betrayed innocent blood. He was feeling guilty about that. If we can't even get to that point of some type of call to the conviction of sin so that people have some burden, some guilt, of course we want them to bring it to Christ and not do what Judas did, but the fact of the matter is true saving faith believes what God says and is burdened by the conviction of sin. And I would simply ask another question as well. Not just do you believe God regarding your sin, but is it evident to the world that we believe God when He condemns sin? Is it evident to the watching world that people in the Christian church, even our own congregation, that we take sin seriously, that we believe God regarding each one of those sins that I read in Proverbs chapter 6, that we believe the significance of sin, that we're burdened by it, that we hate it, even with respect to abortion, does the world get the sense that Christians really recognize that this is murder, that it's not just a sort of flippant thing, it's not just a political perspective? Does the world look at us and see the gravity of that? Do they look at us if we're evangelizing at the abortion clinic? And I'm not saying that we have to be in sackcloth and ashes and that you can never smile or have a conversation. But again, overall, what's, what's their take on how we're viewing this? Do they sense the weight of our understanding of sin? That we really believe this is sin and that God will bring judgment for it? Well, the Ninevites believed God. Secondly, in response to that, they fasted in sackcloth. They proclaimed this fast which was then rubber-stamped by the king as well. They fasted in sackcloth. In other words, humiliation, lowliness, sorrow. The response of the Ninevites to hearing that this pattern of violence was an abomination in the sight of a holy God, their response was to humble themselves. They could not sustain an attitude of, mindless patriotism. At this moment, when they're fasting and when they're humiliating, humbling themselves publicly, if somebody would have gotten up and said, hey, let's make Assyria great again, I don't think it would have taken very well. There There was not a perspective here of high and mighty, arrogant, shameless mockery of public officials who might disagree. 
there was a genuine humility, even humiliation before the Lord. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. If our response as Christians to the overturning of the Roe v. Wade decision is simply to crack open the bubbly and celebrate and go on social media and gloat politically and so on and so forth, if our response is like Donald Trump who went on social media and just took credit for it as a political victory of his own uh, making, my friends, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. This Ninevite king is a pattern for public officials in responding to the word of God. Notice. Verse 6, the word came to the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. He didn't gloat. He wasn't boasting. He was humbled before a holy God. And the people, with their lowliness and repentance... It's almost like it was contagious. God used their witness to impact him. And then he turned around and used his office to promote that same agenda of repentance and humiliation among the people. It was a beautiful thing. And you can see in verse 9 that the king had no sense of entitlement whatsoever. He, he, he doesn't even take it for granted that God will relent of the disaster. He says, who can tell? If God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now you can see in a sense he has some hope, some glimmer of hope for the mercy of God. And I think that's probably due to some glimmer of a reference to God's mercy in Jonah's preaching. But he doesn't take it for granted. He's not seeing it as something that he's entitled to or that the city is entitled to. We've given God His due. We've gone through the motions and now God has a duty to protect us and to, to hold back the wrath that is against us. Not at all. He's humble. He throws aside His robe. He dwells in the dust. And He's saying, maybe even at this point we still get destroyed. He's that humble. So you can see this is another important component in Nineveh's repentance. They believed God. They humbled themselves fasting in sackcloth and ashes. Even even the animals weren't given food or water. That's how significant it was. Thirdly, at the king's command, they cried mightily to God. They cried mightily to God. Verse 8, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, And cry mightily to God. Cry mightily to God. That word mightily there in Hebrew, it means forcefully, violently. Violently. So this is a violent society and civilization. They've been shedding innocent blood, polluting the land. And and all of a sudden, all the energy that they've been putting into their sin is now redirected into their repentance. It's not as though they're zealous in their own pursuit of sin. And then when it comes to relating to God, when it comes to their repentance and their religious life, all of a sudden they're half falling asleep. They were zealous in their sin. And my friends, if you were zealous in your sin and you come to true repentance, all of that zeal is going to be redirected, just like the Apostle Paul, in the things of God. True repentance involves this 
violence, holy violence. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. And in this case, it's violent prayer. Storming the mercy seat. And James 5.16, James 5.16, perhaps a familiar passage that does reference Elijah being a man just like us and then it goes on to speak of prayer or it's just before that point with Elijah. James 5.16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And it says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. The effective, fervent prayer, mighty prayer. That word fervent is the Greek word that aligns with our English word energy, energetic prayer, spirit-empowered prayer, where we're not just saying what we think we're supposed to be saying, but that we have this zeal because we believe God's promises, we believe in His mercy, His goodness, we believe that we have what we ask for when we ask in accordance with the will of God. We're stirred up by the Spirit. And this Ninevite king has great advice for all of us in our prayer life. What little he may have known, it's not even absolutely certain that he was a true believer. We'd like to think that he was. But in any event, cry mightily to the Lord. That's what we need in the church. And that's what we need in the nation. Why would the nation do it if the church isn't? We need to cry mightily to the Lord. We need to pray fervently and therefore it will be effectual prayer. As contemporary Christian uh, music band Petra once said, get on your knees and fight like a man. Get on your knees, whether you like that genre of music or not. It's a good statement. Get on your knees and fight like a man. We're told in Ephesians chapter 6, that we need to put on the whole armor of God and that integral to our spiritual warfare is praying with all prayer and supplication, fervently doing battle and standing in the evil day, largely because of that prayer. They cried mightily to God. You see it in the book of Judges. When Israel comes to a sense of their own utter failure, we've ruined it, We're slaves in our own land to the wicked Canaanite nations. God has sold us under sin and we're helpless and hopeless. What do they do? They cry out to the Lord. Not just that they saw that their situation was bad, but they saw that their situation was bad because God was judging them for their sin and that the only way to rectify the situation was to cry mightily to God to fix it. Now, I would say in our own nation that more and more people are coming to the realization that our situation is bad. Obviously, it's much better than many other nations in the world, but it's just very clear and discernible that things are getting worse and people who don't even believe in God would almost certainly recognize that things are getting worse. This is a very uncertain time in our nation. Many difficult things taking place one after the other. You wonder, what, what's next? What's next? Even if you're not a Christian, probably thinking about that from time to time. But our nation needs to get to the point where we're beyond simply complaining about the problems. Where we're beyond just Tucker Carlson. Oh, this is the problem. That's the problem. We need to figure out, well, where do these problems come from? What is, what is the root cause of these problems that we see in our nation? And if the root cause is sin and unbelief, and pride, 
then we need to recognize what those problems are and we need to cry mightily to God and confess those sins. And we need to humble ourselves and follow this pattern of the city of Nineveh. Crying mightily, forcefully, violently to the Lord as in the days of the judges. And God raised up judges. He delivered His people. And there's no reason to think He won't do that in our nation today. And and if you think He won't, then I dare you to try, right? Prove me wrong. Let's cry mightily to the Lord. Uh, Because there's every indication from Genesis to Revelation that God Himself will honor that and will hear that prayer and will heal our land. Well, fourthly and finally, in this pattern of repentance among the Ninevites, we've seen that they believed God, that they humbled themselves fasting in sackcloth, that they cried mightily to God. Fourthly, they turned from their evil and violent ways. Now that's what the king of Nineveh is calling them to do, and we're told in verse 10 that God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. So, verse 8, the king commands them to turn from their evil and violent ways. Verse 10, God looks at it and says, yep, they've turned from their wicked and violent ways. So it's not merely believing the message. It's not merely humbling yourself before the Lord. These things are vital. These things are essential. It's not merely crying out in prayer. These things are important. But remember when Joshua was praying to the Lord after the defeat by the men of Ai, Joshua was praying about that matter, crying perhaps mightily to the Lord. And the Lord says, get up. There's sin in the camp that you need to deal with. So it's not enough simply to cry mightily to the Lord. Prayer is vital, but if we regard iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us. If there's sin in the camp that needs to be dealt with, and we're not dealing with it, like in the case of Achan, who's troubling Israel, if that's the case, then no amount of crying mightily to the Lord, apart from repentance, is going to do anything. So God says, get up, Joshua, and deal with the sin. So here, again, this Ninevite king is on point. He calls them to turn from their evil and their violence. And you'll notice in that familiar passage that forms our call to worship this evening, where God says that He'll heal the land of His people and He he sets forth the way in which they're to seek and receive the healing of their land. We're told that an essential component is that they turn from their wicked ways. That they turn from their wicked ways. Not just humbling themselves saying, oh, I've sinned, woe is me. But actually getting beyond Romans 7... Who will deliver me from this body of death? I've made a mess of things. Lord, forgive me. But actually get into Romans 8 and start beating up on sin and putting it to death and turning from evil. And in this case, from violence. Turning from our wicked ways. James 1 tells us to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. He says that the blessing comes in the doing. We need to hear the Word. We need to believe the Word. But an essential fruit of believing the Word is doing the Word. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. There are tangible ethical issues in our nation that need to be addressed. The first table of the law 
even in general terms, honoring God as God, not just giving a token, God bless America at the seventh inning stretch, but genuinely understanding who God is and giving Him honor and praise and seeking to understand and know and do His revealed will. That, my friends, is in, in seed form what happened in Jonah chapter 3 in the city of Nineveh. To the extent that they understood the sins that Jonah had enumerated or that the king was referring to when he made mention of the violence, to that extent, they turned. Literally, they repented. In Greek, the word for repentance means a change of mind. In Hebrew, it means a change of direction. It's both. It's a change of mind, but it results in a change of direction. They moved in a different direction. They put aside their evil deeds, whatever they happened to be. Now, again, how did they know what was evil? Well, you say their, their conscience, the light of nature, perhaps, that was, perhaps their violence was so bad that it was just obvious to them. But Jonah had to tell them. That, that was part of this equation. Jonah had to tell them. Jonah, no doubt, preached the conviction of sins in particular. Sins that they had committed, violent acts, evil acts, Jonah would have told them, here's why God is bringing judgment in 40 days. I mean, the idea that Jonah just went there and said, 40 days, judgment, without even telling them why God was doing that, what sense would that make? God proclaimed this message of sin through His prophet. And my friends, if we're to see any change in the behavior of our society, if we're to see any outward repentance We need to proclaim the message of sin, particular sins. We read some from Proverbs chapter 6. We need to to deal with sins. We need to deal with what is the law of God? What does the law of God require for families? What does the law of God require for your ethical behavior in the workplace? What does the law of God say about the role of the government? What does the law of God say about the church and how it ought to function? What does the law of God say about how we're to speak to others and about others? I mean, we could go through the whole Ten Commandments. We need to proclaim that. People need to hear that so that they understand the evil that they need to turn from. If we don't tell people the specific sins, if we're at the abortion clinic and we're not actually telling people that they're going to murder their child and they need to repent of that and turn from that, if we're not actually being specific, what's the point? John 16 tells us that the Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. So that's the ministry of the Spirit. How does He do that? Through human instruments who actually expound the Word of God on these various issues. If you look at our standards, you can see Larger Catechism 4, Larger Catechism 155. Again and again they speak of the Spirit saving people by convincing and convicting them of sin. We need to persuade people. And this is one of the problems at the abortion clinic. Sometimes you have certain groups that are just screaming at people and not actually presenting reasoned arguments that make sense that would actually be used by the Spirit to convince and persuade people of the sinfulness of what they're about to do. Instead, they're just browbeating people and screaming at them and condemning them without actually saying, come, let us reason together. Here's why this is sinful. Here's why you can't do this. Here's why if you do this, God will judge you. He hates the hands that shed innocent blood. But you're not just appealing to the will, but to the mind. 
And, and the Spirit uses this message of particular sins and reasoning with people to persuade and convince them of sin. We need to take that to heart. Well, more could be said, but my friends, just in closing, we live in an impure Michigan. We live in a nation that is defiled, a nation that is polluted with the shedding of innocent blood. And quite frankly, one of our other scripture readings, I think it was from Leviticus this morning, mentioned a lot of other things that pollute the land. And we're full of those things as well. But our desire is to see pure Michigan. Our desire by the grace of God is to labor diligently day by day, advancing Christ's kingdom, setting an example, being salt and light and leaven, to see a pure Michigan, to see a cleansed Michigan, to see a holy Michigan. And if, if saying that just sounds impossible in your ears, and you say, well, that, that's never going to happen, you know, When's, when's the Lord coming back and all of this sort of thing. But here's, here's the fact of the matter, my friends. They would have said that about Nineveh. And, and I have to think Nineveh was probably uh, a, a, far, a far worse situation than Michigan. Not a lot of gospel, evangelical, Bible-believing churches in Nineveh or in Assyria. So we're actually in a better position than they were in. And God brought this great transformation and turned Nineveh upside down. Why can't he do that again? I mean, we could go through the Bible and look at all the promises that say he's going to do that, but I don't want to cloud the issue with eschatological debate. The point is, do you believe God can do this? He's done it before. Why not again? Why not now? Why why, Why can't this ruling by the Supreme Court of the United States be something that energizes the prayer and the labor and the diligent effort of God's people to not simply be the end of a long process, but to be the commencement of something even greater. Why not? Why not a pure Michigan? Why not a Christian Michigan? Why not? If we don't expect great things from God, we're unlikely to do great things for God. We have to walk in faith and in the knowledge of our sovereign, all-powerful God who turned impure Nineveh into a beautiful pattern and paradigm of repentance and humiliation. And just as an aside, lest you think that the application here is that we all need to become street preachers and we all need to go out to the abortion clinics and so on, yes, if you can do that, please do. But, but, believing God, humbling yourself, praying fervently, turning from sin, these are fundamentals of the Christian life. That whatever your place and calling in the home, in the workplace, in raising your children, whatever your role in the kingdom of God, these are things that apply to your life. And the last thing I want to do is give the impression that the way that Christ builds his kingdom and conquers his enemies is people getting distracted from their basic everyday duties of the Christian life to go off and hold signs. If you can go off and hold signs, great. Make some time. I'm sure you can find some time. But fundamentally, believe God and repent of sin in humiliation and pray and labor to turn from sin so that the world would see something of us that it does not see outside of these four walls. That it would see light. That it would see something that catches their attention so that if a visitor comes in, He would say, truly, God 
is among you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your providential blessing of our nation and our state with this ruling. We give thanks for the open door of opportunity now to increase our faithfulness in testifying against the wickedness of abortion. We thank you for the reminder of your almighty sovereign grace and power that your arm is not shortened, that it cannot save, whether it's Nineveh or Southfield or Michigan or the United States of America. We pray that you would bless the proclamation of your gospel and the adornment thereof by the godly living of your people. We pray that there would be a movement of your spirit, whether it begin in the heart of the king and proceed to the people, or whether it begin in the hearts of the people and and turn the heart of the king. We pray that your spirit would be active and that this society would be turned upside down. Give us energy and violence in our prayers and in our zealous efforts. Lord, may you receive all honor and glory as you build your kingdom. For Jesus' sake, amen.